Welcome to the Gore and More Podcast with your host TJ Bowser, Chad Chrisman, and Big Johnny D. We have such sights to tell you. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Gore More Podcast. This is your host with the most, TJ Bowser, and joining me today is writer-director Adam Marcus. Hello! How are you doing today, man? I'm good, brother. I'm good. How are you doing? Really, really good. How was your week? Uh, good. Really quite excellent, actually. It's been been a good week and uh, and awesome to be uh, starting off my new new week with you. Excellent. Nice to hear that, man. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, big fan of yours for a very long time, and I can't wait to Thanks, get bro. into this interview with you. Awesome. Awesome. I've been looking forward to it, brother. Before we get to that, uh, let's take a quick message from our sponsors. Gormore is brought to you in part by A New Kind of Fear Customs. Friday the 13th inspired custom gaming controllers, hockey masks, action figures, and more. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and at anewkindoffear.com. Do you like photography in Friday the 13th? Then check out 13 Gallows Lane. You can find them on Facebook at Gallo Goes to Hell, Twitter and Instagram at 13 Gallows Lane, and on Patreon at Emily Helene. Warning, some content not safe for work. Do you like horror movies collecting in enamel pins? Then check out Creative Terror Pins. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram and at creativeterrorpins.com. And we are back with Adam Marcus for the first question of the interview. Can you tell us how you started writing with Deborah Sullivan? What's the history there and how has the relationship evolved over the years? Absolutely. Uh, Deborah, my relationship with Deborah started actually because uh, I'd been invited to this party by an agent of my first cinematographer on Jason Goes to Hell, uh, Bill Dill. And uh, so this agent, uh, his wife was uh, Deborah's agent. And the two of us, irrespective of each other, had been invited to this industry event, the very kind of L.A. sort of mixer kind of thing, that was going to be about 250 people uh, at this lovely location down in Venice. And... Um, it was purely like you are a walking resume. So everybody has a name <laughs> tag that says what you do. And it was just to hook people up in the industry to work together, to get, you know, to just create more work. And I did not want to go to this. I had just shot Jason Goes to Hell. I was editing. Um, but I lived like half a mile from the location. So I was like, ah, screw it. I'll walk, whatever. So I walked over. I was bored. I was like, eh, it wasn't working. I wasn't working on the film at that moment. And so I walked over and uh, I truly saw her legs from across a crowded ballroom. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And like, I've never been like a leg dude, but I was like, Aruga. I became like that wolf in the, in, in the Looney Tunes cartoons. I mean, yeah. I was like ridiculous. <laughs> Um, I'd never reacted that way. And so, uh, I, I looked up those legs to these eyes that just killed me, just slaughtered me. And I guess she'd had the same reaction to me. And so throughout the night, we just kept drifting towards each other through this sea of, uh, you know, of resumes. Um, and, uh, we got to talking and, uh, she's an actress and, and, and a writer as well. And so, we, uh, you know, we hit it off, you know, pretty, pretty great. And 
It took about four months of these kinds of events before anything happened between the two of us. I wasn't in a place where I wanted to get into a relationship or anything else, blah, blah, blah. I was, you know, shooting my movie and being young Hollywood dude. <laughs> and uh, and I'm telling you, man, uh, best best choice I ever made was to uh, was to keep following up and keep chasing this amazing woman who uh, – you know, it wasn't until we actually, right when we got together, I was doing the um, ADR for Jason Goes to Hell. And uh, Sean, you know, being being the spendthrifty fellow he is, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, the producer of the movie, he didn't want to pay for a loop group for the movie. Uh, so myself, uh, Dean Laurie, my, my, the, my co-screenwriter, and Deborah became the loop group for the movie. So when you watch the film... Deborah is every female scream, every female pant, running, tripping, falling. <laughs> all of that is Deborah. Um, I I am the grunting sounds of Jason getting shot. Uh, Dean and I are the SWAT team entire. Uh, I mean, literally all of that sound effect work is three people in a in a soundstage uh, because Sean was too cheap to actually you know hire professionals to do it. Um, so the three of us did it. Deborah's actually, you know, remarkable at it. And, and so, um, soon after I was working on a script and Deborah really loved the story that I was working on and we started kind of bouncing ideas back and forth. And I finally just said to her, I said, look, you know, she'd been a playwright and she'd won a bunch of awards as a playwright. And I said, look, why are we, why are we working on separate stuff? Why don't you like the genre that I, that I work in? You like what I do. Let's, let's try together. Let's try to work together. And we did, and truly, our first screenplay um, uh, got on the blacklist, which I don't know if you, you, you know what the blacklist is, right, man? No, I do not. Okay. The blacklist is a list of screenplays, and this is way back in the day. This was before uh, the internet, in <laughs> fact. Um, I know. Jesus. Uh, this is the early 90s, and or mid-90s. And so Deb and I um, wrote this movie called Black Autumn that uh, was considered one of the best scripts in Hollywood that had not been made. We've had a couple on the blacklist, which is amazing. Um, we're blessed. And so that script uh, got us so much attention that we started working. We ended up working for every single studio. Uh, wow. I. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's the, look, here's the thing about working with, working together. Um, you know, I am, I'm the kind of guy I literally every morning wake up with a new movie in my head. Um, some people call it paranoid schizophrenia. Some people call it creative. <laughs> um, but, but that's, that's literally sort of, it's funny. I have a, I have a manager who said that's my mutant superpower is being able to do that. Um, and literally every morning I can give you a new TV show, a new movie, and I've got pretty much the whole thing mapped out in my head. And it's just sort of, it just comes to me usually while I'm sleeping. And so that's sort of where we usually start is, is that jumping off place. But the thing about working with Deb, beyond the fact that she is absolutely brilliant writer, is that, and I advocate this whenever I'm teaching master classes in writing and, and things like that, I always recommend if have someone of the opposite sex or at least opposite sexual orientation. Um, it, it gives the film a balanced voice. It gives it, it, you know, and the, and the funny thing is I'm actually usually much better at writing the women and Deb's better at writing guys. Okay. But that's because I actually listen when women talk and she listens when men talk. So because, because we have an affinity for the opposite sex, 
we actually are really good at 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 those voices, at finding those voices. So there's a lot of sort of wonderful give and take because my partner's a woman, but also because my partner has been my wife for, oh my God, 20, uh, 21 years this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a process that's always evolving. You have to come up with rules. Like you can't say that sucks or what the hell were you thinking? You know, things like that. Those are bad. Those are bad words to use. Um, and of course we've used all of them and then had to like deal with the fallout and go, okay, stop. We have to be respectful of each other. Mm-hmm. And, but I got to tell you when you can, when you can make that, that roadmap work, when that stuff all kind of coalesces, uh, it, it, dude, it's the most successful relationship of my life. And, and truly from the standpoint of being able to, um, to write together and to work together and to think together, uh, has been kind of incredible. And look, Deb is in every movie I've directed since I've been with her. Um, so on set, there's nothing more wonderful than having this other half of my brain there, which is Deb. Um, you know, beyond the fact that she gives an incredible performance in anything we've done, she is really, she's the person who, you know, every time I kick the ball off the field, she's the one who kicks it back on. Uh, and that's, that's a remarkable thing. You know, I mean, for the last, uh, since Jason goes to hell. So for 25 years, I've been teaching, um, acting and directing in Los Angeles. I have my own, my own studio, a place called ITA that I teach out of, um, it's a terrific workshop space right next to uh, Sony, Sony studios in Culver city. And so I've been teaching there for, you know, for a quarter of a century now. That is crazy talk. Um, (laughs) so Deborah's in both of the classes that I teach on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And the thing is, that is where I get a tremendous number of my actors is the, is the people that I work with is that I get this kind of wonderful working relationship with them. And then next thing you know, I'm writing parts for them. I'm doing stuff that would actually help their careers as well as help my films because I have such a quick uh, correspondence with these people. There's such a, there's such a good, good give and take. And Deborah's been involved since day one with that. So here's somebody who knows everything about me, knows how I direct, knows all of that, knows my voice, and I know hers. So we're very, very lucky um, to have the relationship we have and to especially have the, you know, the, the working relationship we have uh, when it comes to, you know, the, the, the product that we put out. Awesome. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> As being the youngest director to ever be hired by Paramount, can you tell me about the moment you found out you were doing Jason Goes to Hell? What were your emotions and worries? Um, well, here's the first thing. I was not hired by Paramount. I was hired by New Line. Oh, okay. Because oh, that's right. if you remember, New Line picked up the franchise after after the spectacular uh, Friday 13th Part 8. <laughs> um the the movie uh, the movie had not performed that the way Paramount. Look, there had been diminishing returns for a few films by that point with uh, with Paramount. And here's the thing about Paramount: Paramount uh, Friday Thirteenth was their dirty little secret. It was you know it was the movie that was keeping the studio afloat. It's where all the money was coming from. Which, by the way, every studio has this relationship with their horror films. Um, horror for a long time. Now it's changed, but. For a long time, horror was, you know, was the, the, the hideous stepchild that was kept in the basement that, you know, toiled away on iPhones uh, all day. <laughs> and, um, and, and the thing is, those iPhones were making them the most money. So 
the product that, that, that this idiot stepchild was making was, was, you know, supporting these studios. But because you have things like the religious right and whatnot and parents groups um, and people who say that, you know, we're the cause of all the evils in the world, they kept trying to kind of keep that secret. And it, let's put it this way. This was so specific about the Friday 13th films. You know, if you look, look back on Ebert, Siskel and Ebert's review of the original Friday 13th, in their print review, in the Chicago Sun-Times, and this is horrifying, in their print review, they posted not only Paramount's address to send hate mail to, they posted Sean Cunningham's address <laughs> and Betsy Palmer's address. <laughs> so this is pre-internet. This is, this is truly giving people's home offices and addresses away to the public so that you can write them angry mail, physical mail, send them stuff to show your displeasure with Friday 13th, with the original film. That's how much people hated horror movies. You know, we, we now live in a time where there's like a tremendous amount of love and there's this incredible, um, look, the fan base for horror movies, there's no better fan base on planet Earth. That's just the truth. Um, they are loyal to a fault. They, if they hate your movie, they hate it forever and they will not stop talking about it. And trust me, I've had that, that occurrence. That's awesome. Um, but they are, they are an incredibly loyal, amazing base of fans. So that's something that's developed through the internet age. That did not exist the same way back then. Yes, you know, look, I was at every Fangoria convention as a, you know, from 11 years old on. So I was there getting Dick Smith to sign my pictures. But by the way, back then, Dick Smith didn't charge for pictures. Nobody charged for pictures. They just signed your, your shit. So it was, it was kind of a beautiful, fantastic world. It also shows you there wasn't a lot of money in that part of it. There wasn't this sort of business around fandom because the fandom hadn't exploded. So we, the, fa the horror fans back in the 80s, we, like, we had to keep quiet. Like We weren't so out in front, you know? Um, now there's a legit love of these movies and these movies are now, everybody knows, oh yeah, the one genre that never loses money, horror. Back then, nobody talked about that. So Paramount treated, you know, Friday 13th really badly. Um, they spent, you know, some money on it, but very little money. Um, let's put it this way. Okay, so Friday 4 was incredibly successful, right? I mean, you couldn't get more successful than Friday 4. It was, it was enormous, and it's a terrific movie. When they go to make Friday 5, the choice for director is a guy who had done porn. Now, by the way, I'm not saying anything <laughs> negative about that director at all. I'm really not. I, I, I think that everybody deserves – look, there are a lot of people out there that made porn, a lot of A-list guys that made porn – including, by the way, Sean Cunningham and Wes Craven. So those guys were out there doing this stuff. Um, I think everybody has a chance to move forward. However, you don't usually go from porn right to a Friday 13th movie. And so that shows you where Paramount's head was with this stuff. So, and, and by the way, I'm not, and I'm not a guy who hates on Friday 5 at all. Friday mm -hmm. 5, I find to be like, what I love about the direction of that movie, what I love about the movie itself, that's one of the, one of the Friday films that I think has the most dirt under its fingernails. Like, that movie is kind of like a little sleazy and awesome and has this kind of grossness to it that I think is really freaking cool. Because remember, 
It is a movie about a hockey mask serial killer, for God's sakes. Um, there are issues I have with the story and whatnot that a lot of fans have, but I got to tell you, I, I dig so much of what that movie did. And so when they got to part eight, and as you and I have discussed previously, you know, Jason takes a boat ride, um, you know, Paramount was losing even idea steam and going, okay, what do we do? Well, we don't want to change these movies because, again, our fan base are, are the fan base that like wrestlers. And nobody wants the wrestler to change. Nobody wants them to go from good to bad or bad to good. Everybody likes the wrestlers stay sort of in their lane. And so we can't change the mask. We can't change anything, even though, remember, that mask doesn't show up till part three, till the third film. But somehow that's the only I always love that moment in um, in Scream in the beginning of Scream when Drew Barrymore is asked, you know, who's the killer in Friday the 13th <laughs> and she gets the answer wrong. Mm hmm. And that's the way I feel about fans who lose their mind over the hockey mask. I go, do you, you guys do realize the first movie was about Jason's mom, right? Mm -hmm. And the second movie was about the elephant man in a shack, right? <laughs> and the third movie, halfway through, he conveniently finds a mask in a barn. I mean, I, I, I lived on the East Coast. We didn't, we didn't hang our hockey masks up in our barns. Didn't happen. <laughs> so they stumble across this item, right? Like, I love that people act like this was some, like, they really, they did market research on this. Oh, it's all bullshit. Sean loves to say stuff like that now. But way back when, come on. They were just, they were grasping at straws, trying to figure out how to reinvent this movie that was, let's be honest, the same movie over and over again. So Paramount, in 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 their wisdom with the, with the franchise, they decided, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to uh, have... Ah, uh, Jason on a boat, because we don't really want to pay for Manhattan. We can pay for maybe a day in Manhattan, but let's put him on a boat and get him to Manhattan. Because as every East Coaster knows, the travel time from New Jersey to Manhattan is eight minutes. <laughs> so that works. Um, so anyway, we now have this, you, you have this franchise in, in desperate trouble. Um, and Paramount was ready to sell it off. And New Line was there to jump on those rights. They wanted that thing so bad. And yes, I'm sure that the reason they ultimately wanted it so that they could put him together with Freddy Krueger. Absolutely. I will tell you in my tenure with the franchise, in my time making this movie, that was never discussed ever that did not come up not from new line not from sean nobody talked about a freddy versus jason movie um it just didn't happen so when i got hired by sean what had happened was i i had uh, i had won best picture at nyu for a romantic comedy that i had made called so you like this girl which by the way if you ever get a chance to see it it's it's a it's a really fun little movie but it stars Tom Lennon. You know who Tom Lennon is? I do not. From Re Reno 911. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, he's also the guy who wrote Night at the Museum and The Pacifier. Uh, but Tom, he even played Felix Unger on the last iteration of, uh, of the, the Odd Couple on CBS. 
And then Joe Latruglio, who's the lead of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he plays Adam, uh, Andy Samberg's partner. Those two guys were the leads of my student film at NYU, two, two, two of my really close friends from that, that period of my life. And so these two guys did this flick for me. Um, and in fact, the girl in the movie, the, the girl was my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's a woman named Deborah Kaplan, who wrote and directed Can't Hardly Wait and Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> so I had this kind of badass group of talented young people. We went and made this movie. I won Best Picture. I got nominated for the Student Academy Award, all this other stuff, which was awesome. Uh, but the thing is, I made the movie at NYU, which is sort of the epicenter of all things pretentious. Um, so, I mean, I, so great. So I'm, I'm at NYU, which is the most pretentious school in the single most pretentious city on planet Earth. And I love New York. It's my home. Um, and... I was with a crew of six people. We were called, I'm not kidding you, our production company was called The Syndicate. <laughs> Sounds like a wrestling faction. Um, <laughs> it was ridiculous. And all of us dressed in black, and our logo before our movies was this thing that said The Syndicate, but it was written in the font of The Godfather. Okay. <laughs> so, so we were the single most pretentious people at the most pretentious college at the most pretentious city on planet Earth. So truly the epicenter of pretension. The problem is, is that I made a movie that was a romantic comedy that was in color. Uh, I didn't shoot in black and white. I didn't have anybody, you know, lose a girl and speak French at the end of my film. So NYU, even though I won Best Picture, and, and by the way, I won a, 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 an ensemble cast award. We won a cinematography prize. I mean, we, we killed it, right? They didn't want to bring it to Los Angeles because it, it wasn't NYU enough. I swear to God. What the hell? So I got two job offers, one from David Lynch and Mark Frost for, for season two of Twin Peaks. And the other offer was from Sean Cunningham, who I had known since I was a little kid. And Noel Cunningham, Sean's son, the two of us were best friends since we were little kids. So uh, I was around for the first Friday 13th. I was there. I was in the editing room for spring break. Um, all of this like crazy stuff that went on that, you know, a child never should have had to witness. But I did. And it made me the guy that I am for better or, or worse. Uh, so when I got to when when Sean called me, it was like, look, come to Los Angeles, be my bitch for a year and I'll give you your shot. And I was like, hells yeah. So I come out to L.A. I bring this script with me called Johnny Zombie, uh, which my best friend in college, Dean Laurie, had written. And then I'd been workshopping with him for about two years at that point. And I loved this movie. And I was like, this is going to be my directorial debut. I'm going to make this film. I love this film. And so I bring it out here. And within... Six, seven months while I'm PAing on House 4, not trying to brag, uh, while I'm PAing on that movie, I end up setting up with Sean and Dean, I end up setting up um, Johnny Zombie at Disney. And so now Sean has this big movie going at Disney. I'm not going to direct the film because Disney is truly making it a Disney movie. It was this like great zombie comedy that was absolutely rated R. It had musical numbers. I kid you not. It was nuts. Totally my kind of movie. And so Disney was going to make it a Disney movie. And I was like, that's great, but I, I need a movie now. Like, Sean, give me a movie. 
And at that point, Sean said to me, uh, probably the greatest compliment I've ever gotten in my life, which is, Adam, you are the world's biggest nudge. And uh, at first I, I took offense to it. And then I was like, no, he's absolutely right. And it's how I'm going to live my life and, and have a career. And he said, look, he said, New Line's picking up the rights to, to, to Friday 13th. And uh, if you can get that fucking hockey mask out of the movie, I'll let you write and direct it. Quote, unquote. And I went off, and in the next three days, I wrote the first treatment for what would end up becoming Jason Goes to Hell. Now, at first, the movie was far darker than what what ended up in the you know mm-hmm. in theaters, like far darker, <laughs> uh, much. More, I mean, I'm telling you, like so much more hideous you can't imagine. Um, <laughs> yes, but the whole thing was based on the concept of when I came to the franchise. Look, here's the thing. Was I excited? Yes, without a doubt. But I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not the kind of person, I don't sit around like going, woo, look at me, I got a job. I'm, I'm not that guy. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I'm a guy who the minute someone tells me I have a task, I attack that task like a pit bull. Um, and so I started immediately writing, you know, writing this treatment. Literally three days I, I handed him, I think it was like a 60-page treatment in three days. Um, but why, where I was coming from with the movie was I loved these films. I had seen everyone in the theater multiple times. Jason, uh, Jason uh, Takes Manhattan, I had only seen once in the theater, to, to be completely honest. Everything else I had seen <laughs> multiple times. And when I... When I watched these movies, it kept hitting me throughout them. I mean, look, let's take them in a very logical stance. So the first movie is about a mom who's taking revenge for her dead son. This hydrocephalic headed little boy who was not looked after properly and drowned in Crystal Lake. Great. At the end of that movie that takes place in 1980, that little boy jumps up from the depths of the, of, the, of the water, drags Alice down. Okay. Now, when they, we dragged the lake, there was no little boy. Then he's still there. Okay. So you got a little boy. Well, part two only takes place a few weeks after part one. And Alice is at her apartment. And Jason kills her. He's fully clothed. He's grown at least two feet since the last time we saw him, you know, a few weeks ago. And he somehow either learned to drive or hitchhiked on his way there. Plus, <laughs> he figured out where she lived. So he went to the Yellow Pages. No internet. So I'll, I'll give him that. He didn't have to use a computer. But what? I mean, I'm sorry. What are we talking about now? So... That leap in logic is nuts, right? It's just to keep a franchise alive. Now, I know that nobody at the studio even thought about that. They just went, hey, well, I mean, if you look at the age he died, the kid's going to be older now. Well, first thing, he died, and he's back alive. Okay. Now, if he was alive that whole time, wouldn't he have seen mom? Wouldn't mom have seen him? So why would mom be taking revenge for her kid that died when he didn't die? So he died. How's he alive? How is her darling boy, Jason, alive? Because it is her darling boy, Jason. It's not Roy. 
it's her boy and he seems quite attached to his mom because if you know Ginny puts on a sweater and says I'm your mommy he sees his mommy so all of that stuff has to track right so for that one logic leap well that's something now let's jump ahead to part 6 you know where he's brought back to life frankenstein style in a cemetery. By the way, part six, my absolute favorite of all the movies, including my own. It's, it's, uh, part six is a fucking masterpiece, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but part six, now we literally have zombie Jason. So by part eight, they've melted him with chemical waste and turned him back into a little boy magically? I mean, there's so many magic leaps in this thing that nobody seems to mind as long as there's a hockey mask over all the magic leaps. Yes. And again, part one to two, there is no hockey mask. So you're, you literally take the biggest leap when there was no hockey mask. And by the way, really no Jason, because from the first movie, to the second movie, there was no Jason. He had literally 38 seconds of screen time in the first movie. So, okay, cool. I'm with you on all that. But my response to it is first, this is a serial killer. This is a serial killer who's killed more than all the other serial killers in, 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 in cinema history put together. Um, that's no longer a local law enforcement issue. That's a federal issue. That many people go missing or die in that small a piece of property in New Jersey. You're going to get some action from the feds. So that's where the opening of the movie came. Okay, the feds are definitely going to be running a sting operation to get this guy. They're going to find <laughs> Jason Voorhees. That's going to happen. I love when people are like, well, he's great at hiding in the woods. No, he's not. Stop it. They got Ted Kaczynski, for God's sakes. They're going to get Jason freaking Voorhees. You know, the, the six and a half foot tall monster with a hockey mask and a machete, they will find him. Yes. He's not that good at hiding. So that's where the premise started. But here's the thing. I wanted so desperately as a fan to go, wait a second, <laughs> how, how does this guy exist? And when this I was, segues you know, when I was into our next question. Oh, good. Well, well, what is the next question? So we can lead right to it. What were some of the influences that led you to approaching the Jason goes to hell story in such a unique way and stepping out of the norm of the franchise? My God, that's a good question. So, <laughs> the, so, so, the, <laughs> so the question, so the question, so the, so the answer to that is the first real influence for me, um, because such an influence on all of my filmmaking is, uh, is the evil dead. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> um, which I'm a massive fan of, uh, and by the way, I'm more a fan of one and two than any of the other stuff that's come out of the franchise. I love Ash versus evil dead. I think that stuff is amazing. But for me, what evil dead two did was it kind of made the series jokey. Like suddenly it's all a big joke. And while I love Sam's uh, sense of humor, and I, I, I think that's the treasure of the franchise, for me, it's that first Evil Dead that, you know, Stephen King said one of the scariest movies he'd ever seen. He's right, because there's something about the rawness of that film. There's something about the we have no money, so we have to make it look dark and grimy because we're going to have to hide a lot. There's something about the ingenuity of well, I want to do this shot, but there's no camera that does that shot, so we'll invent a camera. Mm. There's something about all of that creativity that I find so massively inspiring. 
Um, and when I was a kid, uh, you know, making my first movies on video, um, or on Super 8 for that matter, I was constantly building rigs in order to do all of that. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Sam and, and his whole team, they really inspired me to be a more interesting filmmaker. So when I, when I started approaching the, the story for the movie, I knew I couldn't have Ash or the Evil Dead. By the way, I couldn't have a lot of things. You know, everybody always loves that I got the glove and all that stuff, which is awesome. And I'll get to that. But here's the thing. I was not allowed to have Tommy Jarvis. The original hero in my, in my treatment was Tommy. Oh. Yeah. And the problem is New Line didn't buy Tommy. New Line didn't even buy the title Friday the 13th. New Line bought Jason, which, by the way, is a big part of why that lawsuit's happening right now. Like, that's a big part oh. of what's going on because the, the rights are fractured all over the place. So the title Friday the 13th stayed with Paramount, <laughs> as did all characters within, except for whatever was in the first screenplay, which included Jason. And somehow they wrangled a way to keep the mask because it had evolved throughout the years that that was the character. So I was handed Jason Voorhees and Crystal Lake. That's it. So when, when I had Tommy and all this stuff that I had, I, they kept saying, nope. Can't do it. Can't do it. So, Steve, so Tommy Jarvis became Stephen Freeman, uh, not the other way around. So when I when I'm now when I'm constructing the story, we can't have Evil Dead because it's not owned by New Line. So my response was, OK, uh, Bob Kurtzman for the K of K and B effects, who is, you know, who's one of my, my best friends for the last, you know, for most of my life now. Um, Bob was going to do all the effects on the movie. I go out to visit Bob and Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero on the set of Army of Darkness. This is about a year before we shoot Jason Goes to Hell. And it was awesome, guys. I got to play on the set with them. It's the first time I met Sam. I mean, it was kind of amazing. And then I ended up uh, going to a bunch of Sam's commercial shoots that he did um, and following him as a director, watching his work. So I'm on the set of Evil Dead, and I say to, to or Evil Dead 3, I say to Bob, I say, hey, dude, um, I have this idea to put the Necronomicon into the Voorhees house in Jason Goes to Hell. Bob's like, dude, that's awesome. Why? And I tell him my thoughts about what I want to do as far as the mythology for Jason. Even if I can't spell it out, I want it in the movie. I tell him about the dagger. I tell him about all of it. And he says, I'm just going to go ask Sam if you can have it. And he did. And Sam handed it to me in a plastic baggie. I swear to God, in a Ziploc bag. I got a copy in the Necronomicon. So that's how we obtained that piece. That artifact was directly from Sam. And we did it specifically because my feeling was, okay, if mom would do anything to resurrect her Jason, if that's all she cares about in this world, well, she would make a deal with the devil. Yeah. She'd make a deal with the darkness. Why wouldn't you? So here's this woman who ostensibly turns Jason. And back then, listen, back then we didn't have classifications of deadites. Oh, my God. The number of, of, of fanboys who jump at me. Well, that's not really a deadite. What that is is a fourth level demon. With I'm like, oh, stop. Just stop it. Just stop. <laughs> 
that's those are all rules that happened after my movie. That's all stuff you guys created in order to have more fun with the franchise. And that's awesome. When I was doing this, we had deadites. That's what we had. So my response to it is rather than Jason being a zombie, which to me, I just go, there's too many rules broken about zombie lore with Jason. Yes. Why don't, why don't we make him a deadite? Cause there are no rules with deadites. There's no rules. It's just purest evil. It's this thing that's just going to keep coming at you. And so I love the idea of him being Hell's assassin, um, this little boy. And again, the little boy is still trapped in there. So whenever anything about his mommy comes up, there's this incredible connection there. So I loved all of that. I was like, great. That's how I want to frame this thing. Sam loved it. Bob loved it. Everybody was into it. And that's how the Evil Dead came into the, into the franchise. To that end... Um, as I was developing the, the movie, I wanted to find as many in-joke references. Now, here's the thing. This is, you know, when we shot the movie, we're talking 1992. When I'm prepping the movie, it's 91. I'm 20, I'm 22 when I'm prepping, 23 when I go to shoot the movie. Um, nobody had done that. That, that wasn't happening. People were not doing that in movies. No one was connecting anything. So my feeling was... When I was a little kid, um, I'm sure you'll remember some of these, but when I was a kid, man, whenever Scooby-Doo would, like, meet Batman, yes, those were the coolest episodes ever. I was like, okay. I mean, Godzilla versus, versus uh, King Kong, like, all day long for me, right? I'm telling you, when, when Scooby-Doo would meet the Globetrotters, I, I got, like, a, a, you know, I, I got way too excited. The freaking Globetrotters, and I was excited. <laughs> because this idea of all of your favorite characters living in this same universe was so exciting and enticing to me. And so I said, all right, how many people can I put into this universe that connect to other films? Like, why does Jason have to, you know, not be part of, of whether it's evil dead, the thing, um, creep show, why can't it all be living in the same place? Hmm. So, I threw in as many references as I possibly could. And then I said, wait, I was sitting in my apartment. My two roommates were getting stoned to the bejesus. I don't indulge. So I was sort of clear headed. Thank God someone could actually guide the conversation. But I was saying, look, let's, hey, guys, how can we create, um, how can we get more cool pop culture references in? And I said, and I suddenly, well, light bulb turned on. I said, wait a second. I said, New Line owns Freddy outright. And they're like, yeah, I think so. I said, oh, my God, I got a great idea for the end of the movie. Like, this could be epic. So I call up my two executives, <clears throat> Mark Rodesky um, and Mike DeLuca, amazing guys. And they were really young executives at that point. So the three of us were sort of like there was, there was just this great sort of energy between the three of us. And it's amazing when you can say that about studio executives, but it's just true. They were awesome. And so I go to them. I say, hey, guys. Um, can we, uh, can I have Freddie's glove? And they were like, what do you want it for? It was like, they got instantly cold. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and I tell them what I want to do for the end of the movie. And they were like, fuck yeah, you can have Freddie's glove. I was like, awesome. Uh, cut to the, the Freddie's glove arrives on my set in a locked box with a handler. Now, just to give you an idea, Sam Raimi gave me the actual Necronomicon in a baggie, in a Ziploc bag. And New Line, the company I'm shooting the movie for, brings an, a, a, a security guard holding a locked 
case with Freddie's glove in it. It was hilarious. Like, I'm like, I'm like, are you guys kidding? Come on, stop it. So uh, that's how the Freddy moment happened in the movie. That was something we created in our apartment you know, through a cloud of pot smoke. Um, while, uh, you know, and a lot of people love to say like, oh, they made you put that in. No, they didn't. No, New Line, that was not New Line's idea. That was my idea. And then uh, New Line, you know, gave us all the help in the world to make that idea happen. And so while, yes, did they want to put Freddy and Jason together? Of course they did. There's the only reason to buy that Jason character for them. That's it. Um, was the moment with Freddy's glove at the end of the movie something that was an inspiration from the writers and creators of the movie? A hundred percent. In fact, I had to go into a lawsuit about that at one point because it was someone trying to tell, trying to sue New Line, uh, t- trying to sue New Line saying that they had stolen his idea for that scene. Oh, my. And I literally had to give testimony about, and we won the case. I mean, this guy was sent to, you know, loser, screenwriter, you know, jail. Um, these guys who like, they, 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 and by the way, there are plenty of these guys who come in and they go, I came up with that. You stole it. It's like, no, nobody stole it from you, dude. Nobody stole your, your Freddie Jason idea. It didn't happen. <laughs> um, you know, no, I was sitting in your apartment when you wrote it. You jerk. Um, so, so anyway, this is, um, that's sort of the evolution of, of, of that, you know, that, that, uh, part of it. I will say this. I know the movie is tremendously has some tremendous, uh, correlations to the hidden. I had not seen the hidden. I had not up until that point. I had not, I saw the hidden after the film. So, when it got to things like the monster going from mouth to mouth, I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I wanted to crawl under a table um, because I'm like, everybody's going to say I stole this. And of course, everybody said that I stole that. I didn't. <laughs> uh, that that being said, let's put it this way. Let's say I did. The Hidden's awesome. It's a great movie. Jack Shoulder's awesome. He's an amazing filmmaker. So, OK, cool. I stole. I don't care. Um, I didn't. I, I, I know who I am and I know, you know, it's sort of the... Um, you know, the Sean Cunningham thing on, on the mask, you know, on get, you know, get rid of the fucking hockey mask. So there's this wonderful YouTube video of Sean at a convention being, being asked about my quote about get rid of the fucking hockey mask. And Sean is on a panel. He's seated between Harry Manfredini and Kane Hodder. Kane, who is a friend to this day and Harry Manfredini, who I called uncle Harry when, when I was growing up, uncle Heshi. Um, he says, uh, that's a fucking lie, quote unquote. And you watch both the men next to him kind of like laugh and then kind of grimace at the moment. And the camera pulls in on Sean as he starts to backpedal that comment. And he realizes what he just did was slander. Because I didn't lie about it. He knows I didn't lie about it. And here's, here's, my, here's my thought process on, on the Sean Cunningham lie. And I tell everybody when I'm at horror festivals and stuff, I always say to people, because this, this, this comes up all the time. This little tiny video on, on YouTube comes up all the time. And I say, great, everybody take out their cell phones. And you can shoot this and you can put it on, on video, on, on YouTube. I'm saying it out loud. You can put this on YouTube. I'm letting you. Um, here's the deal. So I'm 22. I'm 21 when I get the job. I'm 21 years old. I'm a baby. I just graduated NYU. I'm living on $300 a week. 
I just got a, a, a driver's license for a car I've been living in, but I couldn't drive. Okay? I'm that guy. You either believe one of two scenarios. Either Sean Cunningham said, uh, take that fucking hockey mask out of the movie to, to the 21-year-old filmmaker who's getting his first shot to do anything, or, or I'm 21 years old, I look Sean Cunningham dead in the face, and I say, listen, we're going to get rid of that fucking hockey mask, okay? Got that, big boy? So either I'm the most powerful 21-year-old to ever live, <laughs> that I could crush the creative decision-making process of Sean S. Cunningham, the creator of Friday 13th House at all. I'm, I'm so powerful at 21 that I get a 50-something-year-old Sean Cunningham to cower at my feet. Or... Sean Cunningham told me what to do, and I followed my orders the way a young director, writer would. So either I'm the most powerful person in Hollywood, or I'm a totally responsible young filmmaker. I'll take either one of those. But for Sean, he's either a eunuch, or he's the fucking liar. Okay. That's it. Okay. Those are your choices. So Sean can take either one. Either he's a eunuch. And he was totally dazzled by this amazing 21-year-old boy. Or he's a liar. Either one. Yeah. Choices are simple there. Uh, they really are. They really are. <laughs> when the appearance of Jason Voorhees was discussed, what input did you have on the new look of the iconic slasher antagonist? <laughs> I, had a lot of, I had a lot of input, which was, <laughs> which was amazing. Um, uh, again, you know, I was working with Bob Kurtzman with, with, with the guys over at KB. Um, and I got to say, you know, between Bob and Howard, they, they did most of the design work. Also, like these, there's a guy named John Disson, who's a freaking genius. Um, and Ron Pipes, who's incredible. So I had like this incredible group of guys. And Greg Nicotero was there for like, you know, I mean, he, he and I actually did a lot of the puppeteering at the end of the film together under the set. No joke. There's photographs of, of Greg and I doing the puppeteering. So, I had this incredible group of creative minds. Bob and I, again, because he's been one of my best friends for all these years, the two of us, um, we spent months together just talking design, just talking about. And one of the things that we, we kind of, the two of us collectively sort of came up with was this idea that Jason had been, you know, waterlogged, at, you know, from part six to part seven. Um, you know, part eight, we were told to ignore, but we still went, well, there is that toxic waste incident. So we kept trying to like kind of take into effect all of these, all of the things that had come before with Jason in creating his look. And so the idea was um, that the actual flesh around his face had become so soggy and so malleable over the years that it started to almost swallow the, the, the mask. Yes. So that's why there's all that, that tissue around the mask in, in, in our Jason. Um, look, the other thing, and it's, and it's, it's one of those things that I, I wish we could have done. And if I ever got my hands on the work print of Jason goes to hell now, I would do it. You know, back then there was no digital. We, we, we had an incredible artist named Al Megliacetti who did all of the, you know, magic dagger stuff and the, 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 the demons from heaven and, you know, all these like incredible effects that he created for the movie. But that was all done. That was hand drawn. That was rotoscope. That was, that was, this guy animated all of that. I mean, he, he, it's unbelievable what he pulled off. So we didn't have digital. 
So what I would do now, given the chance, was the original idea, which was too expensive. We couldn't make it work. But I wanted, as people decayed, because Jason's evil soul is in them, right? And, and each person, you know, eventually Josh, we get to see him completely dissolve. But that's what's going to happen to all of these bodies. They will turn to just to nothing, to just paste. I wanted the mask to be under the skin of each one of the people that he infected. Oh. So as they, their tissue starts to break down, you start to see the edges of the mask starting to pop out from their cheeks. And then the holes start to sink in, their eyes sink in, so that I wanted each one of these characters to slowly that the mask was trying to pop through the actual skin because the mask is no longer covering the face. It is the face. Ah. So I wanted there to be that thing. By the way, that would have been the effect that saved my ass with all the fans who just don't like the movie because there's not enough hockey mask in it. Because it is J. I hate when people say there's no Jason anymore. I'm like, oh, shut up. First off, Jason in a hockey mask, screen time wise, one of the longest screen times in all the Friday 13th movies. That's the truth. Because the big fight at the end of the movie and the opening scene, that is a shit ton of time. Those two sequences. Those are huge sequences. But every one of the people who's possessed by Jason is Jason. It's why I have the mirror gag in all of those scenes. It's why Jason keeps appearing to everybody. It's because they are Jason. So this idea, it, you know, Creighton Duke puts it so perfectly, you know, he's just wearing, he's just wearing a different mask, but it's the same guy. That's the point. So it was taking the character and evolving him even further. So no, when it came to Jason's look and quite frankly, the look of all the effects in the movie, um, I was there for every second of that. I mean, I, I truly was, uh, there was a point when I was spending more time at K and B than I was spending time at my production offices. Um, <laughs> So much so that when we were on the Voorhees house set, Howard Berger had the makeup team make me, this is true thing, make me this belt that had two huge saddlebags on either side with ladles in them. And one bag was full of pus and the other bag was full of blood so that I could actually dress my set. So that if I wanted more blood on this, I'd be like, oh, no, no, put more. I, I want to put more there. So I was constantly like splashing blood and pus on my set because the makeup guys trusted me enough. I mean, wait, here. Okay. Here's, here's, here's the coolest thing that happened with those guys on the day we started the show, Howard, Bob, and Greg had bought me an official K and B crew jacket, not a jacket that's given to directors, not a jacket that's given to, to outsiders a Letterman jacket from the actual company with my name on it. Mm. And I still have that jacket to this day because they're like, you're as much a part of our crew as are the guys punching hair. So yeah, it dude, it was, it was magic. The, the effects in this movie were magical and working on them was magical. So yeah, I was, I was intrinsically involved in the, the look of all of that stuff. Awesome. Is the Jason's Dead two-for-one burger sale still available? <laughs> Do you know what's incredible? The number, look, the, the, first off, the number of people who reference it, the number of people who have sent me photos of the burgers, um, the, the amount of love that one concept gets is, is 
sort of crazy, actually. <laughs> um, and even last year, I was asked to um, to do the forward for a book, for a uh, cookbook that's all horror-based um, uh, recipes. Yes. <laughs> uh, called Nightmares and Noms. Um, it's Dude, it's awesome. No, it's awesome. And, and and I'm telling you, like, the book is so freaking cool. Uh, but it's also just like, there's something just great about, I think that, I think that the, the Joey B set and all the Joey B stuff, um, I think that, I think that stuff, it, it really does kind of hit people. Like there's something about that, that is, um, I don't know, man, people really, uh, people really find an affection for that stuff, you know? One of our sponsors makes a uh, banner, replica banner for that. The Jason is dead two for one burger sale. Really? Yes. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> he also makes the hockey masks that hangs off them. <laughs> the banner. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> like the real cheap ass <laughs> ones. Yeah, he has one. Oh, dude, that is great. That is great. We're going to get that. hotter to sign it here in August. Uh, I think that'll make it. He's a total sweetheart, man. Guy is so freaking sweet. He's just kind of kind of an incredible dude. He really is. So shifting gears to Texas Chainsaw. Do it. Hang on a second. My computer just turned on. There we go. Uh, yes, shifting gears to Texas Chainsaw. Let's do it. And referring to Texas Chainsaw, what was the approach you took to writing a direct sequel to the to an iconic movie? Uh, okay, so the Texas Chainsaw thing is. Um, I'll try to give you the, the least complicated version of how that, that all came to be. <laughs> okay. So the Twisted Pictures people um, had a management company called Evolution. That's how Twisted Pictures was born. And Evolution uh, represented Deborah and I for uh, almost a decade. Um, while we were there, they were trying to put together Texas Chainsaw. They had the rights. And so... They had Steve Susco, uh, who had written uh, a couple drafts of a script for a Texas Chainsaw sequel. Uh, Lionsgate did not like the draft. Um, there was all kinds of back and forth between Susco and the producer and, and the studio. And they ended up uh, killing the draft. They weren't going to go with that. So now they were looking for somebody to write a new version of the movie but we, literally, you were not allowed to look at Susco's work. Like, they did not want it to be attached to Susco's script. Okay. By the way, Susco's a friend, and he's awesome. Susco's awesome. Great guy, lunatic, totally my kind of person. So, Deborah and I are approached by the head of our management company and by the producer, who's a good friend of the head of our management company. And they say, look... Lionsgate's going to interview a bunch of people, but we want you guys to be in on this because you're our favorite writers for this. We really want you. Okay, cool. So Deb and I create kind of a two-page document of sort of what our thoughts are. And the first direct thought is, wouldn't it be awesome? Again, much like Jason Goes to Hell. If you look at the first Texas Chainsaw movie, you go, okay, so Sally gets away. She gets out. Um, she, where would she go? Like, where's that truck going to take her next? Well, right to the freaking sheriff's department. That's where she's going to go. She 
you're going to go to the sheriff's department and say, there's a bunch of maniacs. They killed me here. They're going to ask the truck driver, where is that? It's right on that road, blah, blah, blah. And cut to, they're going to drive out there with as many deputies as they can find. So again, like Jason goes to hell in the sense of, you know, <laughs> there are consequences in the real world to actions. When we, when we play horror movies as though the real world doesn't exist, I think we lessen the impact of how scary our horror movies are. If they have real world consequences, then that matters. So in something very reminiscent, let's say, of the beginning of The Devil's Rejects, we wanted the compound, the Sawyer compound, to get surrounded. But here was the other thing. We also, because I love dealing with sort of family rivalries, I think there's something so kind of American about that. I think there's something so interesting, sort of Hatfield and McCoys. I was like, let's do the Hatfield and McCoys of this. Now, just so you know, our first pitch for Texas Chainsaw started this way. It went in a very different direction because our very first pitch for this movie, and I don't know if I've ever even told anybody this, our first pitch for the movie was um, everything that happens in, in uh, uh, Texas 3D happens up until... Instead of Heather getting the, the, the letter from grandma, come, you know, come down to Texas. Mm -hmm. The moment is Heather's, uh, Heather is a stolen child out of the Sawyer family, right? A bunch of the Sawyers have survived, including the, uh, the deputy who works for the police, okay? Which Arlie Ermey ended up playing in other, you know, in, incarnations yeah. Of, yeah. of the series. So... The original idea was Heather's with her boyfriend in college and her boyfriend, kind of a you know great looking guy, but definitely moneyed and a little slimy. He says for spring break, let's go down to Texas. My parents, I, I'm sorry, let's go down to, uh, to Mexico. My parents have a place in Mexico. Uh, it's perfect for, you know, for spring break vacations right on a lake. It's going to be awesome. Let's go. So a, bu a bunch of kids head down to Mexico for this sort of spring break fiesta right over the border from Texas is where they go. They get there. What we find out is that the boyfriend is actually a drug mule for a local cartel. Okay. And this kid is making shit tons of money, um, you know, to set up his uh, land buying deals in America. Um, and this kid fucks up and the cartel takes this group of kids hostage. Well, it comes over the telex, the kids that have been kidnapped. And of course, the deputy of the Sawyers sees this telex, sees the picture of young Heather, and recognizes the baby. Hmm. Literally, like one of those sort of like kin is kin, that's our, that's our girl. He then gets the whole family, including Leatherface, to suit up and drive across the border to Mexico to go get their kin. And the movie ended up being Leatherface versus Scarface. And it was this battle royale in Mexico. And basically, the Sawyers became kind of the heroes of the movie. They were the good guys in this situation. So you truly had the Sawyers and all their chainsaws against this Mexican cartel. It was such a bloodbath. It was so much fun. The producer of Texas 3D wouldn't even let us wouldn't even let us pitch it to Lionsgate. Wouldn't even let us bring it in the door. <laughs>
And I was like, okay, all right. So I know what you want. You want movie and taxes, blah, blah, blah. All right, we'll do it. So we use the same opening, right? And the whole idea of honoring the original family, the original idea, the original movie. And also there was something that turned us on about the idea of let's take the, the ending footage of the original Texas and let's, let's make that 3D. Like let's, let's break that up because most of this is done digitally, even though, by the way, Texas Chainsaw 3D was shot in 3D. It was not a conversion. But we could convert the opening and suddenly, you know, look, they even inserted a character into that opening moment, which is so great. Um, so the, 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 the other part of this is that Toby, when Toby read our script, he called us at home to tell us that he felt like we had made the only true sequel to the first film. And that's from Toby Hooper's mouth. That's one of the greatest phone calls I've ever had in my life. <laughs> so here was the idea. We wanted this idea of a legacy, and we also wanted this idea that Leatherface was made, that Leatherface isn't this, you know, he didn't start off psychotic. Something broke him. And so we had all kinds of like flashback stuff in our script um, where you see Leatherface as a little boy um, being abused by a bunch of other kids in that community. And one of those kids is Bert Hartman, who's the one who brings the, the townspeople to burn them alive in their home. He's the one who fights Leatherface at the end of the movie. So we created this villain. Again, I kind of wanted to make Leatherface a little bit of the, the sort of folk hero of the story. Um, that being said, our script was so much bloodier, so much crazier, because we'd written a movie that was a $20 million film. When they went to go shoot it, it was an $8 million film. So... They, Lionsgate ended up not producing the film because they had all kinds of problems with the producer. So they severed that relationship, but they said, we'll still release the movie. So the producer had to go find other money. Well, he was never going to find the 20 million to make the movie. So he found eight. So that carnival scene, dude, we had a, we had a dozen murders in that carnival scene. We had 12 guys facing off with, uh, with Leatherface at the end of the film. We had a stampede of cattle that Leatherface walks through with the chainsaw. Now, tell me that's not like the, the baddest 3D image ever is a stampede coming at the audience with Leatherface tearing through them. Yeah. I mean, so the, 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 you know, the film was, was far more kind of dangerous and deadly, much higher body count. Um, by the way, there was no fucking cell phone, no smartphone in the movie that didn't exist. We had flip phones because the movie took place in 1993. You know, 20 years after the first film. That was the point. So Heather is not 40 years old in the movie. She's 20. Yeah. So it, th this whole thing about the timeline being screwed up, absolutely. What happened was the director, because they wanted to make this $8 million movie, the director brought a friend of his on, which is totally cool. Kristen Elms came on the film. And they did rewrites, which is great. The problem is they did all the stuff that, for my money, turned the movie into a piece of horror business rather than being a, a movie that would have stand, stood the test of time in a bigger way. Um, and I like the film. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it's it's not the movie that we imagined. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's stuff in – I mean, dude, we never wrote the line, do your thing, 
because, oh my <laughs> God. Um, when Deb and I, Deb and I were brought to uh, Lionsgate, this is about a month before the movie opened, um, to watch the film. And we had not seen any of it yet. And so we sat in a dark movie theater at Lionsgate, truly a private screening just for the two of us in this huge movie theater. And dude, I, I almost started to cry. I was like, what is this movie? Like, it was our movie. No two ways about it. it. Most of it is ours. It's why we get, we have so much credit for the screenplay. But I, I just, I was like, God damn it. This is what happens when people who don't give a crap about the horror genre make movies in the horror genre. And it, 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 it's it, like the rules just don't make sense from a horror standpoint. Um, you know, it's more about gotcha moments with a cell phone. I, I, I'm t dude, I was really like, what a damn shame. There was way more, um, you know, chainsaw action in our script. Uh, and again, there was Leatherface's whole backstory, which was really interesting stuff and really heartbreaking so that the fans, you know, what I couldn't do with Jason, I couldn't make Jason sympathetic. That's not who Jason is. But you can make, you know, you can make Jeb sympathetic. You can. And so we kind of created this Frankenstein's monster concept around him um, that was more heartbreaking. And so when, you know, when Leatherface starts to tear through all the other guys in the movie, and again, it was like 14 people in that warehouse that he fights at the end of the movie. When he's tearing through those guys left and right, dude, it was the kind of stuff the audience would have cheered and never stopped cheering for. So it's just a shame. It's, it, it was a, it was a gorier movie. It was a more fun movie and it was a darker movie. Um, which again, I, I think would have been a more successful movie for, for the franchise. You just answered every single one of my questions that I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. The next one was, the uh, Texas Chainsaw makes makes you care for the Sawyer family and allows there you, you to view them from a different point of view. What led to that yep. decision? Where did do your thing cuts come from? With the character of Leatherface, how did you see him and what him portrayed in this film to make him stand out amongst others? <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you there was a there was a scene uh, to further that that question or that answer. Excuse me. There was a scene in the movie that we'd written where. Um, Leatherface, uh, because he's so he's such a you know uh, troubled kid yes. and so um, special special needs. Uh, the only friends he can make are animals, and so he 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 kind of sits by this creek that's down on their property on the sort of property which is massive. And on the creek, you see um, him playing with a bunch of frogs. And they're like his buddies, these little frogs, right? And a lot of kids play with frogs. Like, you know, you've seen that before. But this, yeah. this kid has a real special bond. And Bert Hartman and a bunch of his buddies all ride up on their, on their 10 speeds. And they are making fun of Jeb, of course, as always. And then they start running over the frogs with their bikes. Oh, no. And you watch this little boy seeing all of his only friends being murdered by this group of bullies. And it's in that moment that you see something change behind Jeb's eyes. Suddenly this kid is not, is not the same kid. And you watch them break this little boy. And that's the beginning of, of the monster. 
that's where you really go, oh no, they just created, they just created a monster. And the other part of it, and again, they wussed out, and I think this was financial, which is so dumb. The Hartmans always wanted the Sawyer land. It's why there's this sort of Hatfield and McCoys between the Hartmans and the, yeah. and, and the Sawyers. Mm -hmm. And they wanted the land. The reason they wanted the land, what we find out is that the well water on the, the Sawyer's property has been slowly being poisoned with petroleum. The Sawyers have oil on their land. They have no idea it's there. Oh, my. And it's, it's leaking into the water. So this completely normal family starts to go insane. So over generations, the Sawyers are getting more and more sick from diseased water that they have no idea they're drinking something that's, that's, that's literally changing their brain chemistry. So these people are, again, the monsters are created. They're not, they're not just born monsters, not a family of monsters. It's that there's something actually poisoning their brains. So the last moment of the film, you know, grandma has all that money. There's all that money. Where'd all that money come from? The last moment of the film, when the you know when Heather's horrible you know uh, um, foster parents or, or her you know kidnap parents, when they show up to the house and they come knocking because they want money from Heather now that Heather you know has all this money. Uh, when Heather, when the door you know when they when when they when Leatherface answers the door to find the two of them there, and, and Heather mm -hmm. ostensibly gets her pet Doberman to destroy these two people. As you hear mom and dad screaming with the chainsaw running, the camera was supposed to drift, drift up over the house, over the mansion, to the back of the house, which you've never seen the land behind the, behind the house, right? You've never seen that plantation. And as it flies over, you see oil derricks as far as the eye can see. And that was the cut, was that the Sawyers are filthy freaking rich, oh, but shit. they're nuts. That was the point. So the end of our movie was this sort of amazing, like, oh, my God, that's where all the money came from. But the money came from something that was poisoning all of them and turning them into these maniacs. There's also there's also a shot in the movie. One other shot I'll tell you about that 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 got cut. That is my, that was my favorite shot in the movie. And by the way, it's the shot that got Dev and I the job, because here's the thing. Seventeen writing teams went up for this job. 17 writing writing teams. Wow. So, yes. So Dev and I were in it literally in like this round robin festival of writers coming in to, to win this, this lottery, right? So the shot, I'm telling you, it was the shot that got us the, the work. We had written it in our pitch and in our treatment. And by the way, we walked in, we had a 15-page treatment to hand them. We did a 30-minute pitch and we'd written the first 11 pages of the script. We had written the opening scene. Okay, so this shot was in the opening scene of the movie, but it was also in the pitch. Was Heather, the baby, as a baby, is being held by her mother when they come, when everybody comes to to kill them, right? When the when the uh, crowd goes, when the angry mob is out there to kill them, a la Frankenstein again, another Frankenstein reference. So the mob is coming. The, everybody's readying their guns. They start this gun this gun battle. Heather's mother crashes open a window and starts shooting her gun out the window. As we draw back, we see that Heather is nursing her mother while her mother is murdering people. 
that was the first shot you saw of Heather. It was oh like my. this like amazing this shot of this baby suckling on her mother while her mother is ending the lives Jesus of several people Christ. in front of the house. I mean, that's how dark our movie was. Yeah. So that's oh Texas Chainsaw my. 3D. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> shifting gears one last time to Skeleton Crew and Secret Santa. Yeah. Secret Santa was Skeleton Crew's first production. Why do a yes. gore-filled holiday horror as your first film? Um, a couple of reasons. I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, we were shooting this movie, literally shooting it, when Krampus came out in theaters and went to number one. Mm. Um, so I was on set when that happened, which was amazing because, I mean, my producing partner, Brian Sexton, who's a freaking genius, was like, was like doing a little dance on set when it went to number one. Um, he's like, we got something great. So here's what happened. Uh, again, my aforementioned partner, Brian had called me. We had started skeleton. Crew. Here's okay. Here's how skeleton crew happened. I made a movie. Oh, 10 years ago now. Oh God. Uh, more than 10 years ago now. Uh, a movie, uh, that no one should go rent. I'm not telling anybody to go see it. Uh, there's a director's cut of this movie that's awesome, uh, that is bears little resemblance to what got put out. But there's a movie called Conspiracy that I made starring Val Kilmer. Um, or as he's known in my home, he who shall not be named. Uh, this guy, um, okay, every bad story you've heard about Val Kilmer, times 10. Oh my. The, the stories do not give it justice at all. And if you talk to any director, any director who's worked with him, they will give you the they will tell you the exact same words. I'm telling you, maybe minus um, uh, Oliver Stone. Everyone else will have something to say about about Dear Val, um, the the single worst human being I've ever had to work with. Oh my! Um, and trust and trust me, I've worked with some nasty people. This guy, it's it's a whole other level of of horrible. So I go to make this movie. The producers of the film, incredibly unscrupulous. So I'm put in the soup with this lunatic. Um, it was, uh, everything about it was bad. I mean, everything about it was terrible. Well, except one thing. There was this guy named Brian Sexton, who was an associate producer on the film, who was about as abused as I was and as Dev was on this set. Um, and by the way, on this movie, I brought out 26 of my actors to New Mexico, from L.A. to New Mexico, to work on this movie with me. So rented a house together. We, like, you know, like really tried to create this incredible thing. And Val Kilmer, I, I'm writing a book called Val Kilmer uh, Kicked Me in the Nuts and Stole My Movie. <laughs> um, and by the way, when I say that, I'm not being, that's not metaphorical. He actually, on day six, kicked me in the nuts on set. Oh, my. That's a true story. So this is a bad dude. Anyway, this guy, Brian Sexton, was the only person kind of giving me a heads up on how screwed I was getting, was trying to help me. Well, Brian became one of my best friends. And over the years, he really wanted to leave his situation. I had really grown tired with writing movies like Texas Chainsaw, where I kept seeing that they would take the movie and then make a lesser version. Look, if someone can make my stuff better, please do. Have at it. Like, Take a script that we've written, make it 10 times better. Give me the credit on it. I'll take credit for your good work any day of the week. I'm happy to do it. 
<laughs> when it's heartbreaking is when you get a bad review on do your thing cause or hey this movie has a smartphone in it but the girl is only 20 years older than she was when she was in the early 70s what's going on when when you get those kind of dings as a writer and you go no 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 we didn't write any of that that's not our script that has nothing to do with us that's the stuff that it, it, it's so hard when you don't earn the ding. If I earn the ding, give it to me. Anything on Jason Goes to Hell, I will take. For, look, when when my brother, Kit Marcus, who gets infected by, who gets possessed by, by Jason at the end of Jason Goes to Hell, he's the last victim. Um, when he speaks, okay, in that scene, that's my fault. I did that. My bad. Jason never talks. I know the rules. I broke the rules. It's my bad. I will take 100% of the criticism for that because that's me. But I won't take it for stuff that I didn't do. So Deb and I had really gotten disheartened with sort of like having scripts turned into stuff that just wasn't as interesting as what we were writing. So I was like, look, I'd rather you know, struggle and not have the big paydays that I'm getting X, Y, or Z but make movies that I'm proud of. Make movies that I go like, that's my movie. Like, I I said those words. I created those characters. That's the movie. And if people don't like them, that's fine. If people hate the movie, that's cool too. But at least it's mine. I own it. So we created Skeleton Crew Productions. Because ostensibly, we kept working with people who were doing the, these jobs, but they weren't doing them well. I wasn't having movies that were produced well. I, I was like, well, I can produce this better than you're producing it. What the hell? <laughs> so when it came to our first movie, we had just formed the company, and Brian was down at AFM in, uh, in Santa Monica at the American Film Market. And he called me up. He said, hey, he said, everybody needs horror. Like, everybody's out. There was a glut a few years earlier. Now nobody has a horror movie. He said, do you have anything that we can shoot super cheap, super fast? And I was like, uh, nope, not right now. No, I mean, most of our stuff is bigger budgeted and whatnot. I said, but give me 24 hours. So I called him later that night and said, I have an idea for a one location movie. Um, let me see if I can put it together before I write one word. Let me see if I can put it together. As I said, my mutant superpower is, you know, every night, I, yes. every morning I wake up and suddenly there's a script ready to go. Um, so I called a good friend of mine, this woman, Pat Destro, who had a house up in Big Bear, California, uh, Big Bear Lake. And it's a mansion that sits on Big Bear Lake. And she's an amazing actress. She's been working with me for the last decade. And she's brilliant. So I was like, look, I have a part for you. I also want to know, because she'd always told me if I ever wanted to use the house for a shooting location, I could have it. So I was like, does the offer still stand to use the house? She's like, absolutely. I said, great. Here's what I want to do. I want the house at the, the, I want it the first two weeks of the new year, right after Christmas. I said, and I want to rent the two houses next door to your house. And that's where I'm going to put cats and crew. Because these houses, a lot of the houses on Big Bear Lake, people rent them, especially at the new year because nobody's up there. So I was like, I'll rent both those houses, but can you ask all of your neighbors if they'll keep up their Christmas decorations through the middle of January? Just to like January 19th, then they can take them down. She was like, I'll go ask right now. 
everybody said yes. Everybody said, you know, they're happy not to have to take down their decorations. <laughs> and I got the two houses next. And so we wrote this Christmas movie. And what I, the reason why I did all this was I was like, look, the great thing about a Christmas movie is you put up decorations, you put up standard Christmas decorations, you have production design that feels authentic and looks amazing and looks expensive. It looks like a Hollywood movie. All you have to do is have those decorations up. So now I'm not even paying for the decorations. They're just up already. Everybody's already put up their Christmas decorations. I'm not paying a dime for that. So that's all free to me, right? I don't have to do the work. I don't have to bring out crew people. I don't have to do any of that. It's all there. It dumps six feet of snow. No joke. The two days where cast and crew are driving up, it dumps six feet of snow on us. We are literally snowbound in this house. No one could even leave the location. We were stuck which was amazing. So I have production design by the heavens and by all the people who left up their Christmas decorations. So right there, it's such a giant cost savings and the movie is going to look incredible. Plus, um, there's something about Christmas. My parents were, were married on Christmas Eve. And even though my parents are Jews, uh, they, they, Christmas, Christmas is like their favorite time of the year. So they love, they love the, the look of everything. Everything looks so beautiful and shiny and sparkly and amazing. So they had this Jewish wedding on Christmas Eve. Well, then they would have a, an anniversary party every Christmas Eve. Well, you can't have a Christmas Eve party without having a tree and all the decorations and everything else. So we had these lavish, beautiful, amazing Christmas Eve parties. So you can't do that when you have kids and not have Christmas. So my brother and I, you know, we'd had eight days of Hanukkah, and then we would have this spectacular Christmas, right? So Hanukkah ended up becoming like, you got, you know, pencils and new, new underwear and shoes. And Christmas was like, you get like, the Millennium Falcon, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so Christmas became this amazing thing. Well, here's what happens. My parents, like all children of the 70s and 80s, <laughs> my parents divorced. But then my mother would keep having the party, which then became sort of a fuck you, I'm not married to that guy party. <laughs> oh, shit. So now suddenly Christmas has this very different feel. The other thing is my, my parents made a giant mistake when I was a, a small kid. My brother and I, I, I think I was maybe six. My brother was five. Um, or no, I'm sorry. I was five. My brother was four. That's what it was. And uh, they were part of this group called Est, which was this kind of self-help guru, horrible thing in the 70s. Um, anyway, this, the, uh, the, my parents wanted to teach us that, you know, Christmas isn't just about, about uh, receiving, but it's about giving, which is a nice lesson to teach children. I agree with that lesson. My parents signed up for this thing through Est, which is in New York, where uh, people are taking their children to Bellevue Hospital, you know, the insane asylum. What the fuck? And we're giving, we're giving gifts to the older people at the asylum, but they're in an asylum, so they're insane. So cut to a four- and five-year-old kid walking through the hallways of Bellevue, handing out gifts to crazy old people who want to kiss you, who want to hug you, who want to... 
That is terrifying for a kid. And all of this on Christmas morning while your father is dressed as Santa Claus. It's nuts. So for me, Christmas became this, look, it's still my favorite time of year. I love it. But it's this kind of insane <laughs> sort of beautiful, candy-colored, amazing thing with literally like maggots eating its way through it. So I was like, how do I take my very conflicted feelings about this holiday and tell a story of a family and look, let's be honest. I mean, here's the thing about Christmas and about all holiday gatherings. I don't care what part of the world you're from. I don't care what religion you follow. Family gatherings, by the way, I, when I was in, at NYU, one of my minors at NYU was criminology. And um, one of the most used weapons of murder in the United States, and I'm not kidding about this, is the carving knife on Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's truth. Now, nobody talks about that because that's a terrible thing and no one ever wants to say that, that ha it happens every year. Because who better to push your buttons than the people who installed them, which is your family? So you've got this incredible sort of like dysfunctional family thing that happens every year at these major events. And who doesn't have family that they would love to just like, oh, if I could just punch them to death. And what if you got a chance to do that? What if all your inhibitions were taken away and you could say whatever you wanted to say and then you could do whatever you wanted to do? And that's what Secret Santa was born out of. So it was partially because I could do it in a budget that made perfect sense. The other part of it is, again, it's my troop of actors. It's, it's Skeleton Crew's troop. So I had 25 actors that I knew could deliver what I was putting on the page. Like I knew that Deb and I could craft something for these brilliant actors that would sh let them shine, each one of them shine. Um, and that was sort of, that was kind of the impetus behind the whole thing. And it was funny because when I would come to actors, I'd say, look, you know, we're going to be doing it for this amount of time, blah, blah, blah. And like, depending on actors availability, because I was going to shoot the movie in order, I had to shoot it in order because I didn't have time or money to be able to clean as I went. So I was like, I just have to let the place get bloodier and more horrible and more broken and just fuck everything up, but I'm going to do it in order. Well, if people couldn't be there the entire shoot, I'm like, great, I'll kill you second. I'll kill you third. I'll kill <laughs> so I was like, I knew how I would get rid of characters and because I knew when I had to get rid of actors. Yeah. You know? Um, and then look, the other part of it is, you know, I had a skeleton crew is a collective of artists that are all like a lot of, a lot of the people involved in the group, including people like Bob Kurtzman that we talked about before, Bob, I went to Bob day one and said, look, I have a movie. You're the only guy I see doing it. Um, I'll send you the script, but there's no money. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before. I said, no, 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 there's no money. But I can't see making this movie without you. I said in the script, a hundred minutes later, he called me back. He was like, I'm in, I'm in. Just fly me out, fly me and my assistant out, put us up, we're ready to go. Like, I'm making this movie. But here's the thing. I couldn't afford all the effects that I wanted to do. Uh -huh. So I had to be creative in how am I gonna build these effects well, for example, there's a, there's a decapitation in the movie that happens late in the film. 
And uh, it's an incredibly expensive effect. I know how expensive the effect is that I wanted to pull off. Well, here's the thing. My next door neighbor at the time is this guy, Michael Rady. Michael Rady is a wonderful actor. He's, he's, he's a that guy. He's had five CBS television shows. I mean, he's, he was in the reboot of Melrose Place. I mean, he's, 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 he's amazing. Um, did that Kevin Costner movie. Uh, was that the, no, not the recruit. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, he, he's, he's a brilliant actor and, and done a ton of stuff. And so he's my neighbor, became one of my really close friends. And I said to Michael, um, I said, hey, you want to be in a horror movie? He says, are you directing it? I said, yeah. He says, yeah, done. I was like, well, let me give you the script. He goes, no, 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 I'm in. I, I want, I want in, I want in. And this guy was also a student of mine at the time. And so he looks a lot like my brother Kip, who of course was in Jason Goes to Hell and got his head chopped off. And I went, Michael, I know exactly how I'm going to kill you. Because I have my brother's head in, in a box in my garage <laughs> from Jason Goes to Hell. So when I showed up to set, Bob was like, how are we going to do this decapitation effect? He says, I have all the, you know, I have all the implements for it. I just don't know how we're going to do the actual head. And I said, don't worry. I got us covered. And I pulled this head out of a box. Bob Kurtzman, I think he's still laughing to this day over the fact that I still had that head. And it was in great shape. Bob just redressed it, did a little makeup on it, made, the, made it look even more like Michael. And next thing you know, I have a $10,000 effect for my tiny micro-budgeted movie. Awesome. So, and now that head sits in, my, it sits in a box in my garage, and now it's Michael Rady's head, and I'm sure I'll find somebody else to use it on years from now. <laughs> just, but this is, but this is, you know, the, the, the idea behind Skeleton Crew is to look, you know, Bob did all the effects in the movie. He also shot second camera for me. And when I asked him, I was like, Hey, you want to shoot second camera? He said to me, quote unquote, he said, dude, I feel like I should be paying you to do this movie. Like, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. In the middle of shooting, Bob came to me. It was, the sun was rising. So we were, we were, cause we were shooting all nights. We shot 11 nights. The whole movie was done 11 nights, one day. And so, uh, Bob comes up to me and he's like, this was six o'clock in the morning. Sun's coming up. We're all going to bed. We're all going off to our bedrooms. Bob walks up. He goes, Hey man, I, uh, I just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, for what? I should be thanking you. He goes, no, no, man. He says, this, um, this is the best experience I've had in a decade. He says, this is, this is what movie making is what we're doing right now. This is what movie making is. And I had forgotten that. And thank you for that, man. And the guy hugged me and wept. I'm not kidding. That's, dude, come on. Like, that's the moments that you live for as a filmmaker. Those are the things that you want to do. It's like, yeah, it's great to have a number one movie. It's great to have all those things. And I've done all that. That's awesome. But I got to tell you, man, when you actually have friends that you, that you love, that you get to work with, uh, the guy who did our soundtracks, a guy named Tim Eilers. Tim Eilers is a big prop sculptor for giant movies like guardians of the galaxy two and uh, fate of the furious. And he does all these huge, big budget movies. Right. And he's like, you know, the giant gun that Gamora runs with yeah. in, in guardians two, he, he was one of the sculptors on that gun. Okay. So this is the stuff that he makes, right? He makes this incredible stuff. Well, I've known Tim for 24 years now. And when I first met Tim, he had read one of my scripts and said, Hey man, I do music would you be okay if I wrote some music for this script? I was like, music for the script? Um, sure, if you want to. And he wrote 10 minutes of music that if you read the pages of the script of where he wrote the music to, 
if you read along, he had literally written a soundtrack to go with the screenplay. That's I'm awesome. not kidding. And it's 10 of the best minutes of music I'd ever heard. So I went back to Tim when we were doing Secret Santa. I said, dude, I said, you still want to do music? He's like, oh, Adam, more than anything in the world, I would, I would kill to, to, like, that's my dream. And I was like, great, well, do this one for, for no money, and I'll make you, the, I'll make you the, the company composer. And, man, I've got literally two LPs worth of music from this movie. One is all reimagined Christmas songs. The other is a full score that this guy did for the film. <laughs> oh, he, was yeah. writing music, he was writing music for the movie for over a year. And now he is doing the job he was always meant to do. That's the thing about Skeleton Crew is that we're, we're constantly um, reinvigorating people's creative lives. That's what I love about this company is this idea of like, you know, uh, one of my best friends, a guy named John Esposito, who truly, he's a brother to me. Uh, we met on Jason Goes to Hell. He, he was one of Bob Kurtzman's best friends. And John, you know, he wrote Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. He was, uh, he did the rewrites and was a one of the producers on From Dust Till Dawn, the original. Um, he won the Writers Guild Award two years in a row for The Walking Dead. I mean, the guy's, he's a brilliant writer, but he's always wanted to direct. And the thing about Hollywood is Hollywood loves to put people in boxes. Like you stay in this box and do the job that you're really good at and we'll never move you from that job, which gives you a certain amount of job security, of course, until somebody younger and half the price shows up. Um, but it does give you some job security. The problem is that what if that's not what you wanted to do your whole career? So John is now going to be directing a movie for us that he wrote and getting his directorial debut finally. So this is the kind of stuff that's happening. You know, we, we're working with the Saska sisters on a film called Night Spinners. That's amazing. Um, we've got these young producers who brought us this film called Fat Camp Massacre. That's one of the next ones we're going to be doing, um, which is for people of size, what Get Out was for people of color. And it's this sort of rally cry against the last thing that people can be outwardly nasty about is how heavy someone is, that it's okay to do that. Um, well, I'm helping them. No, you're not helping them. You're torturing them. Um, so we've got that movie going. And, um, and also, uh, you know, I've got, uh, uh, we've, we've actually got one huge project that I can't talk about just yet. It's huge. It's got a major A-list cast. Um, it's a bigger movie for Skeleton Crew, but we're, we're finalizing it literally as I'm speaking, my producing partners across town finalizing paperwork. Um, but we have a huge movie that's going to be coming out. Um, and that one will be a big, a much bigger release than, than sort of the indie market. Um, we're doing that with Lionsgate who have been incredible to Deb and I, our whole careers, it's like our, our favorite studio to work with. Um, and then, uh, the next film I'm directing is uh is a movie called hell's bells um which is uh let's say an ode to my favorite character that i've ever brought to life in a movie um someone i've been asked about for forever if i would do more with with this character now i can't do more with the character because you know i don't own the rights to the character but um let's just say stephen williams and i'll be working together again Ooh. yeah yep yeah. So, movie that takes place in the south side of Chicago uh, and might have something to do with all hell breaking loose. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the project I am more excited about than anything I've worked on in a very long time. So that one is happening as well. So we're you know we're we're kicking ass, man. We're doing a bunch of stuff and uh, and honestly, just doing stuff that I'm proud of that I feel excited. I mean, you know, Secret Santa um, has done it, uh, this year. We've got two more festivals coming up, so it'll be 22 festivals that Secret Santa's been in, and we've won some of those festivals. Yeah. Um, and been nominated for tons of prizes, and, you know, it's it's just one of those, look, it's the little movie that could, you know, and so we'll, we're going to be out on VOD in October with Secret Santa um, for the, for, fresh for the holiday season. Um, and when I say holiday, I mean Halloween and then through Christmas. Uh I mean, the thing about Secret Santa, it's one of those movies that I, I actually tell people you should watch it at Thanksgiving because it preps you for Christmas, but also it's about your family and your family's together around Thanksgiving. So it's good fun for the whole family around <laughs> any any wonderful familial celebration. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's what's happening with Skeleton Crew. OK, so you've answered the rest of my questions for the interview, uh, <laughs> <laughs> except one. Okay. Part of one. It. The dark heart of Jason Voorhees. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, here's the thing about Dark Heart. Dark Heart is going to be making an announcement really soon, actually. Um, uh, we, we are going to be going into a new phase on production for that documentary. Uh, the doc's been worked on for about a year now, um, but we are just starting to shoot stuff. And um, it should be, I would say, be ready in about a year. Um, a year from right now, from when we're talking. Um, we've already had uh, one of my favorite festivals on planet Earth, um, Fright Fest London, has already asked to uh, to screen the movie at, for its premiere. So we, we are probably going to end up uh, doing that because I'd like to honor my relationship with those amazing guys, especially Alan Jones over there. Um, and it's uh, it's a cool doc because... It's not a fluff piece. The, the, what I had said to the guys who brought me the project were like, look, we want to do this. I said, that's great. And they're both, they're, they were fans of the movie. And I said, that's awesome. I love that you're fans. I said, but here's the thing. I, I can't stand watching another like, aren't the filmmakers great? And isn't this movie great? And everything's great. This is great. Uh, I said, it's not great. I said, we were treated, I was treated badly from, the, from Jump. I was very lucky to get the job and I'm very grateful for the job. But the truth is the producer of that, of the original film has been nothing but cruel to me since. Um, he tried to jump on board my, my, my wagon at one point when I had won, when I had won a bunch of awards, a bunch of festival awards for my second feature, uh, let it snow, which was a romantic comedy. And we had been a Sundance favorite. And suddenly I started hearing from Sean Cunningham again. I'm like, oh, dude, back off. Like, no, thanks. I'm good. Thank you. Um, the thing about that movie is that it's a blessing and a curse, you know? And look, part of the reason Sean wanted to get rid of the mask, in my opinion, he never said this, but it's my opinion. My opinion is, is that I think he had been trapped by it. I think he made this kind of scary little Halloween ripoff, really Bay of Blood ripoff, uh, with the original Friday 13th. And he never expected it to become what it became. So it gave him tremendous carte blanche when it came to money and success and power and all of that. But here's the thing, and Wes Craven found this out too. You know, 
you get stuck in those characters. Suddenly that hockey mask is the map is, you know, it's the man in the iron mask and you're the one wearing the mask. So, you know, I asked Sean early in working with him, you know, um, what he wanted, what his career goals were. And he said with, without any irony, he said to win an Academy Award. And I looked at him and I went, the guy made Friday 13th wants an Academy. All right, cool. I was like, Hey, anything can happen. But I'm telling you the lure of Jason money of Friday 13th money is so great that you never leave it. You never want to leave that money. So there's a certain hold that it has on you. And for me, you know, that's why Sean, I think became very bitter. I think it's why he was so nasty to me and several other filmmakers that he's worked with. Um, and I think that, uh, the thing about Dark Heart of Jason Voorhees is that really what the what I said to the guys was, I said, look, I said, I'm cool if the movie is about this. Why the hell would anybody give the world's largest, longest-running horror franchise to a 23-year-old writer-director? Who the hell would do that? <laughs> what crazy person would do that? And how did that happen? That movie is something that's interesting to me. I'm like, that's a cool movie. Because, it, you know, I, look, when I, when I look for documentaries about filmmaking, I want to see things like Overnight, which is a brilliant movie, um, and, uh, and Heart of Darkness, which, by the way, the original title of Jason Goes to Hell was, was Friday 13th, The Heart of Darkness. That was literally oh, the title okay. of the movie. So... I like when movies are, I like when, when documentaries about film are not just puff pieces. Like, uh, by the way, one of the sections of the movie will be fan hate. And we'll be interviewing people who hate the movie, critics and fans. And I'm cool with, like, I'm actually great with that. I'll tell you why. Most movies in most franchises, even the big, the big group, they don't get talked about a lot. People just don't talk about them. You, you rarely hear a long discussion board about Halloween 4. <laughs> right? How many times have you sat and True. seen somebody's really gone in an in-depth analysis of, of Friday 13th 7? Well, they don't. No one does that. Here's the thing. Jason Goes to Hell is so... It, it's such a thorn in the sides of the guys who love the mask. What the fuck, man? How'd you get rid of the mask? What's wrong with you? <laughs> <coughs> hurt my voice doing that. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just that that is such a sore spot for them. Look, you know, and, and I love when this gets quoted all the time. Okay. And it's always misquoted for years. The first question any interview would ask me was what the hell with the shaving scene in the middle of the movie, dude, yes. it was literally the first question all the time. <laughs> and my common response to it was, and I mean this, when they'd say, why is that in the movie? I'd say, it's in the movie because you would ask me that question 20 years later. Boom. Because here's the, here's the thing. Friday fans, they're not scared of Jason. They're not scared of him hacking his way through people. They're not scared of any of that. Well, they're horror movies. They're supposed to be scary. They're supposed to unsettle us. They're supposed to make us think. Not just go, yeah, he killed another one. <laughs> okay, th th that's why it's a wrestling movie. For me, I wanted to make a horror film, you know, like the first movie was. 
Friday 13th and Friday 2 are scary-ass movies. Those are frightening films. So when I went to do Jason Goes to Hell, it was like, okay, I want to actually have a movie that's scary, not just knock them up, uh, set them up, knock them down. I want to make a movie that's a little frightening. Here's the thing. Most of the dudes that go to see these movies are super straight bro dudes. Well, guess what? <laughs> um, when I show a middle-aged Andy Block tied naked to a table with an African-American man over him and he's shaving him and then he's kissing him. <laughs> hey, man, if you want to hate my movie for that scene, awesome. Because it means I just it means I got under your skin and I stayed there. Yes. And I have no problem with that. That's our responsibility as horror filmmakers. I am not there to make you feel warm and squishy. I am there to make you question yourself. And the truth is, dude, a hallmark of my filmmaking from day one, Secret Santa, more than anything else that I've made. Um, I am all about movies that look like our world, that are 100% inclusive. I mean, so inclusive. It's awesome that we're, we're doing this interview right after Pride, Pride Weekend. Um, I am all about shake people at their core and make them reevaluate their own prejudices and their own bullshit. And if it means it scares them, that's great. That's great. But Jason Goes to Hell and all of my movies are not there to make you feel good. They're there to entertain you. I want mm -hmm. you to enjoy yourself. I want you to have fun. But, dude, I'm sorry. The first Evil Dead scared the crap out of me when I was 11. I feel that. It scared me to death. That's the point. Of the, or I was actually 13. Sorry, 13. Um, the, these movies are supposed to move us in a way that, that isn't easy. And for me, the Friday 13th movies became easy. And that's why they were just losing their edge. They were losing their fun. And if Jason Goes to Hell bothers people, that's great. I'm, I'm cool with that. By the way, let it keep bothering you. Keep, keep running. I, I literally, literally this morning, I woke up to someone had posted a thing, a very sweet thing about, uh, it was a poster of Jason Goes to Hell. And it said, I don't understand all the hate for this movie. I love this movie. And I was like, oh, that's really, I even commented. I was like, thanks. That's very sweet. Thanks, man. But the comments underneath, here's what's crazy. 10 years ago, those comments would have been 70% negative, 30% positive. Now, it was, and I, and I did the math on this, it was 80% positive. But the 20% that didn't like it, dude, literally, it's a steaming pile of shit. I, I was like, what? Is it? Really? <laughs> like, and, and that's the searing commentary you're making on the movie. My favorite is most of the negative comments are, well, there's no mask in it. I mean, there's mask at the beginning, mask at the end. Those are the best scenes. The ending is badass. Movie sucks, though. What? <laughs> I don't and when I, meet, when I meet fans who hate the movie, when I meet people who are really violent about it, I always go down the list with them and I go, okay, so... Did you like the effects in the movie? Oh, yeah, badass. Some of the best in the franchise. Okay, cool. You like the opening with the, with the FBI girl? Yeah, she was hot. That girl was hot. She's, hot. she's a girl from Roadhouse. She's freaking hot, dude. Yeah, she's great. Um, but you like that whole chase with Jason? Yeah, it was badass. You like when the FBI blew him up? That was fucking cool. 
okay, cool. Um, you love the ending, right? The last like 12, 13 minutes of the movie where Jason comes back. Yeah, it was awesome. I love Jason came back. That was fucking great. Cool. Okay, how about the acting? Did you like the acting in the film? Yeah, no, everybody was pretty good. It was a pretty, yeah, pretty good movie with that. Yeah, the acting was good. You liked the characters. Yeah, I mean, that Joey B bitch talked too much, but yeah, but it was pretty cool. She's just, <laughs> even she was pretty cool. I'm like, okay, cool. So you like the characters, you like the acting. You like that Jason is badass the front and the back of the movie. You love the kills, and you think some of them are some of the best effects in the movie. Yeah, that tent girl thing is like, that's the best effect ever done in the movie. Okay. And it's a piece of shit? Why? Because you didn't see a hockey mask as much as you normally would, and because mm. I put a guy on a table and shaved him. Is that it? <laughs> is that our dividing line? Is that our problem? I'm telling you, I just, if somebody wanted to say, I think the acting is subpar, I think the cinematography sucks, by the way, the cinematography is beautiful, Bill Dillon did an incredible job on it. Um, if, there's a, if there's legitimate criticisms you have of the movie, great, tell them to me, I'm interested in hearing it. The problem is the criticisms have nothing to do with the quality of the movie or the kind of movie it is, and I love this one, this is, my, this is one of my favorites. Uh, Jason Goes to Hell would be badass if it wasn't a Jason movie. It's a great movie, but as a Friday Thirteenth film, it's a big pile of shit. Okay, I, I, I'm sorry. What 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 cinematic uh, analysis university did you go to? Because now, literally, it's just about fandom of a mask. Yeah, exactly. it's it's like a fetishistic thing, and I'm like, dude, I'll get you a ticket to a hockey game. You can watch a goalie mask all day long, baby. Will that make it better? Like, do you need some time on a couch? What's going on? It's crazy. It's crazy. So, look, there, there are people who lost their minds when I finally revealed the whole Deadite connection to the movie. Yeah. Um, which, again, I go like, why is that a bad thing? Doesn't that make you happy? Like, aren't you a fan of horror movies? Isn't it cooler? To, you love that Freddie and Jason got together. So what's the problem with Jason? And the Evil Dead getting together. Like, what? where is that a problem? You know? Yeah. There's no problem so, with it. It's, a cool, again, it's another cool crossover. <laughs> thanks, dude. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, look, dude, this is, you know, I, as a giant, stupid, ridiculous, nerdy fan of all of these movies, I just want to make a movie that celebrated all these movies. That's all it is. That's all it is, man. So, that's what Jason Goes to Hell is. That's what Texas Chainsaw is. You know, it's 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 constantly wanting to embrace and love my fans while scaring the shit out of them. I want them to actually have fun and be challenged by this stuff. And look, Secret Santa is, you know, it's a horror movie. Absolutely. But it's more of a comedy than anything else. Um, and it's that movie is more about scaring sort of the part of you that thinks your family is safe. Um <laughs> but then taps into your id about what you would love to do to members of your family. So it's more about scaring you from a psychological standpoint. Um, but no, man, I'm, I'm all about, I, I want to, I want to make great horror that that's constantly challenging what great horror is. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what skeleton crew is all about. Awesome. Uh, I can't wait to see what you guys uh, come up with next and, the future Thanks, of horror man. with you guys. But Thanks, thank you for DJ. coming on the, the Gore More podcast. 
Yeah, dude, this has been fantastic. You guys are amazing. This is this has been awesome. Thank been you. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, yeah, dude. with that being said, that is all for today's episode. This is TJ Bowser signing off. How many people actually get a chance to say whatever they want to Jason fucking Voorhees? Hey, fuck. How you doing, you badass, maggoty, blown up fuck? Suck this! Suck it. You know what I'd like to do to you? I'd like to take a crap right on your fucking mask. A big old mango-sized crap. Just have one thing